Uh, have you ever heard of a thing called space tourism? For those who have the money, there are companies that will fly you into orbit about 70 miles up where you can experience space in some sense like a real astronaut. And about two years ago, you may have seen this on the news, the actor William Shatner was taken up on one of these trips into orbit. And when he came back to Earth, uh, he was so overcome with emotion, he could barely speak, just in tears, concerning what he had just experienced. Now, this is really interesting because we're talking about Captain Kirk from Star Trek. If anybody should know about space already, it would be him, the final frontier, right? Um, but it's, it's not hard, hard to spot the difference in a case like that. William Shatner knew about space uh, like I know about ballet, okay? Uh, it, it, for him, it was only as it was imagined in a Hollywood studio. He didn't know anything about space, really, until he experienced it for himself. Real weightlessness, real awe and wonder. And then, of course, the difference was clear, and it defied for him all description. He had no words for it. Well, there's an application here, perhaps, uh, when it comes to our relationship with God. Y'all, we talk a lot about God around here, pretty much the main thing we do, okay? Every Sunday when I stand up and preach, I count them up about 2,500 words in my sermons. Y'all, this book, your Bible, contains almost 800,000 words in it. There is so much information for us to read and study and interpret and apply, of course. But the life of faith does not consist only in true words about God. The life of faith is meant to be a real experience a lived experience of God's love and grace. Or we could say it this way, a Christian is not someone who only knows about God. A Christian knows God and is known by Him. And that difference is everything. And what we see, I think, today is a really terrific example of this right in front of us in 1 John chapter 3. Now, up to this point, as we've walked through this letter, John has gone to great lengths to teach us true things about God, to establish us in this truth, to warn us about sin and false teaching, and so on. But here at the beginning of chapter 3, we experience, along with John, an outburst of emotion. It feels almost as if John is writing this letter and suddenly he's caught up into orbit, into awe and wonder, and we get to read over his shoulder as he's experiencing this, really what is essentially an outburst of joy and gladness in the light of God's grace. And, and what we see here is really John kind of opening a window for us into God's very heart and what it means to know Him. And so I'm going to do my best today in my 2,500 words to give us not so much in the way of mechanics, but to hopefully try and, and show us something of what it is to be swept up in the love of God, swept up into orbit, that we might feel, perhaps, something of what John surely feels as he's writing these words all those years ago, that we might see, along with John, the unique blessing of being a Christian here, something that does not just influence our thoughts, but reaches to the heart. And so look with me, this is 1 John chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 3. We'll read it all together to start. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. The first word in verse 1, see, really means to gaze on something with astonishment, to be enraptured. It's a special word for a special experience. And y'all, of course, we can see the difference here. We, we, We go about our day, you see with your eyes a million things on any given day, but only rarely, very rarely, are we stopped in our tracks by something we behold? And this is the idea that John is presenting to us here right up front. This is the kind of seeing that captures our full attention so that we can't look away. It's like being entranced with something. And John tells us what we're meant to see, what we're meant to gaze into here, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, I promised already I wasn't going to get too technical, but y'all, there's something very interesting happening in this verse. John is actually using an idiom to describe God's love here, and it's, it's fairly difficult to translate into our modern English. Now, an idiom is something like, we'll be here till the cows come home. Right? How y'all feel in church sometimes, perhaps. And we all know what that idiom means. We're going to be here till the cows come home. That means we're going to be here a long time. The cows don't come home until the end of the day. Well, that makes sense to us here in the English-speaking South. But if you tried to translate that idiom into a different language, it would almost make no sense, right? Because it's not just language, it's also meaning. And, and we couldn't take that literally, perhaps, in a different language, a different culture. Well, that's what's happening here in verse 1. My Bible says, see how great a love. But the literal Greek in which John writes says, see of what country this love the Father has given us. The idea being, this is something foreign to us. Something of a different country. Something of a different language. We might say, what planet are you from? But that's what John is saying here. The love of God is like nothing we've ever seen or known. It's otherworldly, beyond our categories, beyond our imagination. And so John is giving us an invitation here, a command. He says, gaze in astonishment at this otherworldly love the Father has lavished on us. John is putting into words what can hardly be put into words. The Apostle Paul does the same thing when he writes to the Ephesians that his prayer for them is that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. 
to know something that's beyond knowing that can only be experienced deep down. And y'all, here's the best part. John is not telling us to look upon something that's very far away, but to delight in something that we personally received. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. And y'all, that's a verse that reads on the surface so sweetly, and it is sweet, but it's also radical. Because if we recognize who we really are, what the Bible says about us, then it would be a scandal to think that God could really love us like this. Y'all, here, just very quickly here, the Scripture teaches us that all of us, every last one of us, were at one time very far from God. The Scripture says we were dead in our sins. We were rebellious. We were ungodly. In fact, in Romans 5, we read that we had, all of us, we had made ourselves enemies of God in our sin. There was nothing in us to merit God's good favor. We were lost. That's the testimony of every person at one time or another. But God, the Scripture says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, sent us His Son. It was Jesus who gladly took our place. On the cross, Jesus served as the once and for all substitute for sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus took away our sin and our condemnation by bearing it in Himself. And in its place, He gave us, not condemnation, but He gave us salvation. He gave us His own righteousness. So now, right now, for all who trust in Jesus and His grace, we are reconciled to God forever. That's the great work of the gospel. And so what that means, y'all, is this. God has taken people who were once his enemies and has now made us his children, his dear sons and daughters. We're not just forgiven of sins. We're adopted by God. We really are his own prized possession. We call him Father, and he calls us his beloved children. Now, what did I do to earn such favor and position with God? Nothing. And that's what makes it good news. Not good advice, not good wisdom, but good news is that God has done it all of His own will, of His own heart. See how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we are truly His children. Do you believe this? Do I? You know, one of my favorite all-time television shows is called Everybody Loves Raymond. If you're married, and if you're married with children, you've got to watch this show, okay? You're, you're, you're missing out otherwise. On the show, Ray, the main character, he's got an older brother named Robert. And Robert is very insecure about his place in the family. He's convinced that his parents have always favored Ray over him, and, because they have. And one of the running gags on the show is how things never really turn out Robert's way. Things never really go in his favor, or if they do, it's only for so long before 
things kind of fall apart again. And so periodically, Robert in the show, they're Catholic in the show, he'll look up toward heaven with a snarl and he'll say, you think this is funny? Now it's all done for comedic effect, of course. But what Robert is communicating here is he's convinced that God, God is just fundamentally against him or at least indifferent toward him. And y'all, the truth is a lot of people carry this belief deep in their core. Maybe some of us do. We're always in life waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're always waiting for things to go bad. Even if they're good, they won't stay that way. We're always perhaps living under the assumption that God is either against me or he just doesn't care. But this is where John wants us to stop and see. Stop and consider what is solid and true for everyone who belongs to God by faith. That God has created at infinite cost to himself, God has created a new family. That we are not primarily his servants, we are not God's clients, not God's employees, we are his children, his sons and his daughters. Such is the greatness of God's lavish love, that if you belong to him, if he is your father, then God is fundamentally and forever for you. He is for you. That is what is true. No matter what circumstances may bring us to conclude or to feel, God is for us both now and always. Now for John, as he writes verse 1, as he calls us up into the orbit, in a sense, of God's love, there are three really important implications. If this is true, that God loves us and makes us his children, then there are three things we reckon with that are true um, about the life we live now and the life that is to come. Three things, he says. I'm going to just cover these briefly. First is our present predicament. Second is our future glory. And third is our holy calling. Present predicament, future glory, and holy calling. You see this in the middle of verse 1, our present predicament. Things are going good halfway through verse 1. God loves us. We are his children. But look at this now. For this reason, because we belong to God, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, the world right here is a reference to the general attitude of those who stand in opposition to God. This is what it says in the Gospel of John, in the book of John, chapter 1, about the coming of Jesus. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, Israel. And those who were his own did not receive him. The idea here, of course, is that the world is not just indifferent toward Jesus, but actually lives in opposition to him. And if we belong to him, then of course the world will not know us either. Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love its own. The world would have no problem with you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We've got to reckon with this. 
Because identifying with Jesus means we will be forever now, as long as we're here, we're going to be at odds with the world. That doesn't mean we hate the world. We love the world in the way, hopefully, that God loved the world. We seek the good. We, we bring the light. We share the gospel. But we don't expect the world to love us back. And John just states this as a simple matter of fact. Don't be surprised. Don't be devastated if we get the same treatment that our Savior got. And one of the reasons we don't despair, one of the reasons John doesn't seem all that bothered by this opposition, is that our present predicament only leads to a promised future glory. That's the second implication. Look at verse 2. This is wonderful. He says, Beloved, now, right now, we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when Jesus appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. When John speaks here of the appearing of Jesus, he's talking about His return. We know, John says, that when He returns, when He appears, we will see Him just as He is. Meaning, we will see Jesus in His heavenly glory. We will encounter Jesus and know Him in a way that we cannot now possibly comprehend. But John's focus right here in verse 2 is not primarily on what Jesus is going to look like. The focus is on what His glory will do to us. When He appears, John says, we will be like Him. What? We're going to be like Him. Paul preached this also in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's what awaits us. And of course, the point is not uh, that, that we'll be like Him. We're not going to become little gods. We don't become like Jesus in His divinity. But we will be glorified with Him. The idea of heaven is not that we're just lucky to get in, we kind of enter in through the doggy door, and Jesus is magnificent, but he's all, you know, he's, it's like the Mona Lisa. He's always behind a thick plate of glass. And you can see Him, but you can't get too close. Y'all, that's not what the Bible teaches. That we don't worship Him and, and see and experience His glory from afar, but up close and very personal. His glory we will share. And this is the privilege of being His child. This is why I think John does not dwell on the world's opposition at the end of verse 1. He states it as a matter of fact. The world will not know us. That's okay. Because our present predicament is nothing compared to what is coming. The eternal weight of glory far outweighs, outlasts any momentary opposition, any suffering in this life. It's, it's, it's as if there's no comparison I liken it to a mountain versus a feather. The glory of God that awaits us and anything we might face in between. Our present predicament will give way to unimaginable future glory. 
So now, third implication in verse 3, we embrace a holy calling. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Now this is a running theme throughout the letter that everybody who belongs to Jesus, if we fix our hope on Him, then we will seek to live a life that reflects Him, His holiness, His goodness. Or we could say, like father, like son. If you are God's child, then you are meant to some degree, in a, in a failing and fallible way, yes, of course, but we're meant to reflect the Father. His heart and His character. We are to purify ourselves in our devotion to Jesus just as He is pure. Peter says, as obedient children, we now live up to the holy calling with which we've been called because God is our Father. And so this is John's view here of holiness. Our holiness is evidence, it's fruit of being a Christian. Because this is what it means to belong to God. We don't just believe, we are transformed by His grace. Now this segues into next week's sermon, which is going to be a doozy, okay? I can already tell you. So come back next week. The call to purity, what it looks like to belong to God. We'll get there next week. But I, I want to close this morning by returning to something I said earlier. Being a Christian is meant to be a lived experience of God's love and grace. It cannot be simply that we know the right things about God, that we could pass a test if it were given to us on a Sunday morning. No. We're meant to live in God's love, to experience Him, to know Him. But what does that really mean? Especially here in the context of, of 1 John 3. Y'all, I want to put your mind at ease. To, to live in the experience of God's love cannot mean that we always are just overcome with emotion. We're always riding some spiritual high. We might burden ourselves to think that that's what it means to be a Christian, and it's not. That's not the witness of the Scripture. Even Jesus didn't experience life that way. But to live in the light of God's love, to see Him, and to be changed, to be reoriented, right? The idea here in 1 John is that what, what John is telling us really does change us. Not just our thoughts, but our heart. Not just our, our religious inclinations, but our, our living and our being. We're changed. Think about the three primary things that John has told us this morning. Our relationship with God is entirely different. It's not at all what it used to be because He has poured out His love on His enemies and made us His children. Our relationship to the world is now different. We no longer belong here in the way we once did because now we belong to Christ. Our hope for our future is entirely different because we know the glory that awaits us at the return of Christ. And, now there's four, I said three, there's actually one more. Our attitude towards sin and purity is different. We no longer live as we once lived. We now want to live like our Savior. Y'all, these are not religious ideals. These are lived realities. This is who you really are by faith in Jesus. And so, y'all, humor me here for a second. I, I was trying to think about what could be a very precise, specific kind of application for a message like this. So I just got as specific as I could for me. 
and my, I trust that it might apply to you too. What might tomorrow morning look like for you and me if we really believe what John just told us? We will, Lord willing, wake up tomorrow, Monday. Immediately tomorrow morning, you and I are going to have a choice to make. Will I reach for my phone? And maybe you're more righteous than me, but that's the first thing I reach for every morning, my phone. Will I immediately, will you immediately go down into the rabbit hole, first thing in the morning, of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, news, email, or whatever? What's going to be the first thing tomorrow morning that captures my gaze? Where will my thoughts go first? George Mueller used to say that the first and most important duty of his day was to get his heart happy in God. That was his priority, and he did it primarily through a commitment to Bible study and prayer. And his perspective was simply this, and he was right. There's no way I can attend to all that God calls me to today. There's no way I can endure the hardships of the day. There's no way I can love others well unless my foremost affection belongs to God. Now, of course, this is not some kind of Christian law that from 6 to 6.30 a.m. you have to read your Bible. We don't apply it in a legalistic way. But the true conviction, y'all, for me is this. It's not so much about the time of day for me as it is the nature of my own priorities. Am I posturing myself to see, to behold the great love that God has for me? Am I treasuring as of first importance, am I treasuring Jesus in response to the obvious and amazing ways that Jesus has first treasured me? Or am I looking constantly for anything else to distract me? To take up my gaze, my attention, my focus, my priority. And y'all, I want to leave us with this because this could be very much a burdensome conclusion to an otherwise wonderful message. I don't want it to be that way. Am I treasuring Jesus in any way that reflects the, the outrageous way he has first treasured me. That's what we're studying. 1 John 1 does not say, when we finally figured out how to make our way to God, then he received us with open arms. No. It's the love he lavished on us when we could not do anything to deserve it. When we had done nothing at all but sin. He lavished his love. He sent his son. He made us his children. So y'all, listen. When you and I wake up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, our first thought of God should not be seen as duty, but as privilege. Gaze intently, John says, at the great love the Father has lavished on us that He would call us His children. That's not a duty for us. It's a privilege. Get your heart happy in the Lord. George Mueller said, by delighting in His amazing grace for you. It's not something you wake up tomorrow and begin to earn back what you lost the day before. It's not that kind of relationship. It's father to child. 
it's son or daughter to one who loves us and has shown us his love by pouring out his grace. So y'all think about, again, very practically tomorrow, just tomorrow. How much more grateful would we all be tomorrow if all along the way, each and every moment of the day, we just took time to consider every single good thing in my life is a gift from a Father who loves me. Every single good thing, every breath, every heartbeat, clothes to wear, a roof over our head, a working vehicle, friends to care about us, family who loves us. Everything is a gift. Because the Father has lavished His love on us. Would you be more grateful if you carried yourself tomorrow with that way of seeing Him? How much more prayerful would we be if we really believed that God loves us and that He delights to draw near to us? that He cares about every detail, that hairs on your head are numbered, God loves you that much, would you pray more? Would you pray more vibrantly, more trustingly, if you really believed Him, if you saw? How much more hopeful, how much more confident would we all be if we gave our attention to the promises of Jesus and the glory that He has laid up in heaven for us? Would we despair the nature of things in this world? Or would we live with hope, fixing our eyes on Jesus? and the promise that awaits us. Do you see how John is calling us here? Not to go and do this, and do this, and do this, and be more religious. It's not a manual for self-improvement here. It's an entirely new life of seeing, of beholding, of gazing intently at the Lord and His grace and His love and His promise. Y'all, I spent a lot of my life thinking that the basis of Christianity was simply this. Here's what God expects of me, and now it's up to me to do it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Here's what God expects. Kyle, go and do it. But I hope we see the difference here. What John wants us to see. And he's adamant that we see it. The whole basis for our faith is this. Here is how God has loved us. And what He has done for us in love, how He has made us His own. And when we begin to truly see this, if we'll gaze into it, if we'll stop and stare as we should, then this wouldn't just change our morning routines. This really would change everything. And I pray for me, I pray for us that it would. So let's do that now. Let's ask the Lord for His grace. Father, I, I pray this morning a prayer of confession and hope that if I'm honest enough, Lord, with, with my own heart, with our church, with my friends and family here, that, Lord, I, whatever it is, the impulse that's in me to reach for anything other than You, to fix my heart on any distraction, no matter how trivial, and to fail, Lord, so often to get my heart happy in the Lord by doing what John calls us to do this morning, by seeing how great a love you, my Father, has lavished on me.
And Lord, I pray for us, I pray for all of us this morning that, that this is not a, a burdensome duty that, that somehow when we fail to see that, that we're, we're just one more thing to add to the list of, of things we ought to do. But Lord, that we're, we're talking about the whole of our lives. We're talking about everything. That we would see, we'd see you in everything, Lord in every good gift. Lord, in everything that we find joy in and gladness in, Lord, it finds its root in You. In every good work, Lord, that You bring about in our lives, it comes from You, Lord. In every, in every glimmer of hope, Lord, that we experience, in all the darkness, Lord, when we see the light of Jesus Christ, all of it, Lord, we're meant to see and delight in You because You've loved us. This is, this is not a work we're meant to perform. I pray, Lord, this is, this is the life we're called to live, the experience we're meant to have, to see, to behold. And so, Lord, I, I pray that for me, for us, I, I pray that our priorities would reflect that we don't want anything more than this. That, Lord, there's nothing in this world better than to be in, enraptured, caught up into orbit, Lord seeing your great love, delighting in, Lord, the grace of Jesus, being transformed, Lord, um, out, of, out of what we were, your enemies, into what we now are, your children. Father, I pray that, that, um, I pray that rather than for us to see this as a duty, that, Lord, it would be a privilege to look upon you and, Lord, that everything else would take shape around it. Everything. The way we work, the way we parent, the way we handle our money, the way we think of church, the way we do everything, Lord. We think of it, Lord, through the lens of your great love. Father, I pray that uh, as we consider Jesus Christ crucified and raised, Lord, that we would see him so passionately loving us that the infinite cost of his suffering for our sin, Lord, he took on with joy because he knew he would have us as the outcome. Lord, if we are, if we are that loved, then Lord, let our love in response be great, be rich, be the very first thought, Lord, that, uh, that enters our mind when you wake us up tomorrow morning. We pray let it be in Christ's awesome, awesome name. Amen.